you. I've been excited about the possibility to talk to you and here it is. So I, um, I just want to, uh, you know, just really thank you for during this time of COVID to um, take some time because I know you're very busy as a neuropsychologist and a forensic psychologist uh, to uh, speak with you, Zima, about your expertise. So um, I, I want to give you the floor to introduce yourself and tell us about your, give us your background. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm happy to be talking to you about this subject. So yes, as you said, I'm a forensic psychologist and a neuropsychologist. Uh, basically, it's, you know, the two fields are subcategories under the broader field of clinical, neuro, uh, clinical psychology. Um, a forensic psychologist is someone who uh, assists the legal system in understanding how complex mental health issues play a role. And a neuropsychologist is someone who has um, additional expertise with related to brain behavior relationships. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you an opportunity to tell us uh, your full name and where you went to school and, your, and um, uh, where your practice is. I'm Sonal Pencholi, um, and I went uh, to undergrad at the University of Maryland, mm -hmm. and then I completed my doctorate at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. Mm -hmm. um, after that, I... Um, completed postdoctoral training in neuropsychology and forensic psychology in Miami. And then um, once, uh, you know, then I've been practicing, I've been licensed since about 99, 1999. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> long time. It's been a long time. I've been doing this for a while. Right. And then um, I was at Walter Reed for a while, and now I'm in practice private practice. Wonderful, wonderful. I want to, you know, the biggest concern right now, given COVID, is the sudden change in the educational system. Um, and, you know, given that you have both expertise in neuropsychology and forensics, I think that you will actually be on both sides of this, this fence. And one of this is we have children who are at a critical time in their lives not being engaged in learning which could, uh, for some children, and we'll get into those diagnoses for those children, uh, put them at um, a critical disadvantage, uh, which we know in the United States, these kids who are at disadvantage uh, from learning or their socioeconomic environment will place them at a higher risk of um, becoming incarcerated. And that's a reality. Uh, I think that's not very, that's not talked about. So we'll take this, kind of break this down um, and three um, thoughts, and that is your thoughts on the current state of education with some children online and some children not. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's a huge issue. It's a huge issue of concern. Um, you know, in my opinion, the online learning is really not great for really any kids, any children. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, if I had to say, you know, sure, kids that are mature, that are older, have developed independent study skills, are able to sort of structure and organize on their own, um, they, they can sort of get through the online learning okay. Again, it's not ideal even for them. So I'm talking like juniors and seniors and high school college students, mm -hmm. but kids beyond that, in general, with or without any diagnoses, any special needs, 
just your ordinary child who's been doing just fine, mm-hmm. you know, in, you know, in-person learning, they're going to really struggle with the mm-hmm. virtual learning. And then on top of that, um, you know, kids who have even sort of benign, if you, if you will, disorders like ADHD, mm-hmm. you know, learning disorders like dyslexia mm-hmm. or, you know, things like that, you know, and then obviously more, you know, serious, uh, mm-hmm. conditions and developmental disorders like autism, those kids are really, really going to be struggling with the virtual learning. Mm-hmm. But above and beyond all of that, you know, mm-hmm. if you sort of parse it out, you know, you've got the families that have the, you know, ability for parents to work from home, and they have a little more, more flexibility. Mm-hmm. So those parents are sure going to be helping the kids out. Um, they're going to be providing the structure for the kids, they're going to be helping out you know, uh, ways that they can enhance the learning. So if they're not getting the learning through the virtual learning, they're going to spend that extra time. But then you have this population of kids Mm -hmm. whose parents have to continue working, you know, outside of the home, Mm -hmm. who don't have the luxury to work from home or don't have the luxury to, you know, not work. Um, And those kids are really going to fall through the cracks. Mm -hmm. Those are the kids that that disparity is going to continue to grow even more. Mm-hmm. You know, the kids that are were already maybe falling behind because they already didn't have the support system in the home. Right. You know, even with in person, they didn't have the support system, and then they don't get the, um, you know, how is your homework? What what did you do at school today? Mm-hmm. And then with the online learning. The parents are not, you know, able to support them. Mm-hmm. So those kids, that gap is going to further, um, you know, and those are the kids that, yes, you know, when you talk about um, kids that are more uh, prone to dropping out of school or failing out of school um, and then get into the cycle of, you know, criminal behavior, getting incarcerated. Yeah, absolutely. I see COVID being a huge concern for that population um, and that gap, that disparity between um, kids who have the supports at home mm-hmm. prior to COVID and then, you know, continue to don't. That, that's going to be a bigger issue. My question for you is parents seek you out primarily when what is going on? And are you, you're in Virginia, is that correct? Yes. Um, I'm, I'm in uh, Fairfax. Um, my office is in Fairfax, Northern Virginia. Mm-hmm. And so I g- generally get referrals, you know, self-referred families. I get referrals from other providers, pediatricians, neurologists. Usually um, when there is any kind of, you know, symptoms or, you know, concerns that get raised, whether they're starting to fall behind in school or socially, they're having difficulties emotionally, they're withdrawn, they're not, you know, they're refusing school, um, they're angry, having tantrums, anything like that. Um, So typically, you know, parents will either observe these issues on their own, or, you know, the teachers will identify these issues, and they'll seek me out, or, you know, providers like myself. One of the issues with that is, Obviously, with the online learning, there's less identification of these kids who have, you know, issues and, and symptoms, you know, especially if the parents are 
just trying to juggle, trying to maintain their own employment. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's less attention given to the kids and those needs are not maybe getting identified. Okay. But typically, yeah, the families that come seek me out are when they're noticing some sort of problem, whether, you know, teachers have identified them or they're seeing those issues at home on their own. The question I have is, you know, growing up, if you had to be tested, you know, there was something wrong with you. And, you know, as we speak about specific issues within the Black community, one of those is the fear of being labeled. Um, and I've always said that the world is going to label you whether you've been tested and called that or not. Um, and, you know, someone said, okay, now we're in this world of branding. You know, the world can brand you or you can brand yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'd like to give you an opportunity to, to say the importance of testing and how it actually can be beneficial to dispel this myth that if you actually have some type of testing done, that that could actually put you out of the educational system or put you at a significant disadvantage. I'm actually finding out that that's actually helpful. Right. It is helpful because one of the things when I'm working with families um, I, I'll explain to them that, you know, the testing, first of all, it's, it's not really testing like in school. There's no mm -hmm. pass fail. There's no, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, grades or anything like that. Mm -hmm. The testing really, what it is, is it allows for a, a really clear understanding of the individual's cognitive functioning, mm -hmm. you know, how they're learning, their different ways of approaching problem solving, mm -hmm. um, their, you know, if there's any strengths, if there's any uh weaknesses, um, what are their areas of concern, what are they really um, advanced in, in terms of um, their cognitive abilities. So it identifies overall, you know, what their cognitive profile is. Um, if there is going to be, you know, diagnoses that's going to be identified, that really just helps to identify what mm -hmm. their treatment needs are going to be, what the interventions are, mm -hmm. um, and so the testing, you know, it helps in two ways. One, just broadly, it helps to identify how that student is best going to learn, what, what their learning style is, and how at home and how teachers can help them utilize their strengths that are already there to help um, with their learning. And then if there are any kind of concerns, if there are developmental delays, that can properly get labeled, if you will, okay. um, at, you know, more accurately diagnosed as opposed to just, you know, teachers saying, oh, well, you know, this child is a slow learner. Well, slow learner doesn't really tell you anything. Mm -hmm. But if you identify that, oh, they have dyscalculia, which is a learning disorder in math, and then you identify what the underlying deficits are mm -hmm. or the underlying, you know, different ways that they learn, you know, whether it's the visual spatial processing disorder or executive deficits, whatever it is, then you know how to address that particular learning disorder. Mm -hmm. So um, diagnosing through testing really helps to identify what their treatment needs are, what their accommodations are going to be mm -hmm. um, that are going to be most helpful, mm -hmm. how things can be structured at home and at school. You, you, you said a term um, that you described earlier, the kid who can't work independently, the kid who um, is struggling to go through steps of instruction 
uh, without being guided. And the term you used was executive skills, or executive functioning. Can you explain that a little bit more in terms of maybe the, the age in which it becomes critical and, um, and uh, that dynamic that it sets up with the parent? Sure. So yeah, executive functions, um, it's a cognitive um, domain, basically, where um, it's the higher level thinking skills. So kind of like the, the manager of our brain, you know, so executive functioning refers to sort of a basket of different abilities, like uh, self-organization, complex problem solving, mm -hmm. prioritizing, self-monitoring, learning from one's mistakes, hypothesis testing. So all these really higher level thinking skills. Um, and it's time management. <laughs> time management, exactly. Thank you. Uh -huh. um, and so these cognitive functions are residing in what's called the frontal lobe of the brain. And that's really the last area of the brain that's developed, mm -hmm. um, that becomes fully developed for, for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, and so usually full development is typically around the mid twenties, um, really, you know, the demand of executive functions starts, um, uh, taking place probably in that transition from elementary school to middle school. And that's when society expects children mm -hmm. to start becoming more independent with organizing their own responsibilities, mm -hmm. time management of, you know, mm -hmm. their day, um, learning from their mistakes, things like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so as parents and as teachers, we're going to have that expectations of them. Mm -hmm. But students who have weaknesses in that area, yes. um, you know, they may often be labeled as lazy or, you know, unmotivated mm -hmm. or, you know, just, you know, not able to function on their own um, out of, you know, just because they don't want to. Right. Um, not, you know, adults not realizing that this is a capacity issue, that they don't have the capacity for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, it could be, you know, the lacking of capacity could be as simple as something like ADHD mm -hmm. or, you know, a benign learning disorder. But the impact of having a weakness in executive functioning is that, that, you know, budding adolescent is going to be functioning, at least in those areas of cognitive functioning, as someone who's much younger, maybe the 13 year old is going to be behaving more like, you know, a nine or 10 year old. Um, and so if parents and teachers have that expectation that, oh, this child has this particular weakness, so they're going to need supports, external supports, mm -hmm. then they're going to be able to function much better. Mm -hmm. What would you like to see, um, based on your experience with working with families, if you could advise a school system, particularly, let's say, a, an urban public school system, won't name names. I mean, there's like so many, just pick mm -hmm. one, you know, whether it's mm -hmm. in Chicago, or I'm sure you said you traveled in Miami. I mean, I grew up in Houston. I mean, we got LA. What would you say could, won't take away all of uh, these problems, but is there, is an, if there, is there an organiz, organizational um, 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 suggestion that you would have uh, that could help uh, if you said, if there's something I would tell all school districts right now from my experience that would help children who are at risk, do you have a suggestion? Sure, you know, uh, schools have guidance counselors, they have social workers, mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, they've got the nurses um, for, you know, every student, you know, they're grouped by student populations within school. Someone who's able to really um, monitor students as they're starting to transition, say, from elementary school to middle school. You know, what is that student doing? Here was the student in elementary school was getting A's and B's. All of a yeah. sudden, in seventh grade, their grades have dropped. That student should then be identified and, and then, you know, looked at in terms of what's happening with their performance and you know is it you know is it these executive issues are they falling through the cracks because of these organizational difficulties so someone who can you know kind of monitor students who all of a sudden appear to be at risk you know and identify within the first you know ideally within the first month or two but definitely within the first quarter and then pull them aside and then start working with them in terms of organizational abilities and teaching them mm -hmm. strategies and you know using schedules and using external structure mm -hmm. involving the parents is in as much as possible you know letting the teachers know that this mm -hmm. child is having some organizational difficulties i think that would be really good for schools to be able to have someone who's only in that role to to monitor students in that way i think that's a very good 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 thought i think that's something that um i found critical um even in my public school years that we always had that nurse but as you know there have been cuts in educational systems whereby we really don't have a high school counselor to even help the child transition to, to college um, and we also are missing um, school nurses and school nurses. I think they had an issue with that in, uh, recently in Philadelphia, where they had a shortage. Uh, Anna Costia lost uh, um, some uh, a school nurse in that area as well. Uh, so I, I would agree that we, if there was any legislature or legislative actions that could be pushed that would ensure uh, this kind of safety net in schools, that would be awesome. Um, and something that um, certainly um, after COVID and a reevaluation of how we're doing with our children in schools, that we might need to make that suggestion again. Um, I think that's very vital. Um, you also mentioned, um, you know, checking on these children uh, with uh, changes in their school. Uh, we talked about their executive function, but we know that there are social issues that can be affecting the child, and particularly COVID with parents out of work or parents underemployed. Yeah. It's gonna create a lot of depression. So here we are with this word of depression and, the, and maybe the parent, which could translate to the child. So if you see a child that is underperforming, do you have the ability to say, no, this child actually is capable, but mm -hmm. I, 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 I can test out or tease out some type of um, emotional problem. Are you able to do that? Yes, absolutely. That's a great point. I mean, first of all, you know, socialization, it's, it's such a big, broad topic, but to just really zero in on what you're asking, you know, absolutely. With, with cognitive testing, one of the, you know, most amazing thing is that when someone has the capacity, mm -hmm. you know, testing will show, you know, that, oh, their profile, their cognitive profile will show that they actually are capable, you know, they have the ability, mm -hmm. all of these functions, executive functions, attention, processing speed, their intellectual abilities, look at that, these things are intact. Therefore, you know, we know that mm -hmm. they have the ability to function at this higher potential. Mm -hmm. And then, 
you know, looking at some of their other areas of functioning, uh, scores that are more sensitive to emotional functioning, mm-hmm. that will then help me to identify that, okay, well, it's not a cognitive issue. It's not a capacity issue. It's more, you know, possibly depression, possibly anxiety, mm-hmm. um, you know, it may not be even clinically significant. It may not be a clinical depression, but mm-hmm. you know, maybe there's bullying going on or low self-esteem, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. But absolutely through testing, you can identify whether what looks on the surface to be attention issues mm-hmm. or memory issues may actually be due to depression or anxiety. Mm-hmm. So now transition to your work as a forensic psychologist. You're testing a child when they when you're working in that capacity. Uh, let's say it's a, a, a young person, 19, 20, 21, and you see that this there's possibly um, some executive skill weaknesses or comprehension. Uh, do you then go in and test the person or what would be your role then as a, as a forensic psychologist with this background of being a neuropsychologist that says, we may be, we may be dealing with a child or person that is really not of stated age and maturation. Yeah. So it depends on what the question is in terms of why I'm doing the forensic evaluation. But let's say a typical example, you know, it's a competency evaluation. Is the person competent to stand trial? Which means, you know, do they understand the basic processes of, you know, the the courtroom? Um, do they understand that well enough to be able to even stand trial? And so as I'm just doing that very narrowly focused um, evaluation for competency, if it seems to me that, you know, well, they're not competent, but what's the underlying reason that they're not competent, then definitely a recommendation to the court would be, you know, this is not just, um, you know, a basic issue of teaching them, okay, what's happening with a defense attorney or, you know, what their charges are or anything like that, but they're going to need a much more, um, you know, fuller uh, education and they potentially may not even be uh, able to get to a point where they're competent because of their cognitive deficits. So Mm -hmm. there are definitely times where I'm starting off just doing a competency evaluation and then I recommend that there's a need for a neuropsychological evaluation. Okay, now you won't perform both on the same patient, will you, on the same case, will you? I can, yeah, absolutely, depends on, you know, it, it's, there's a little bit of red tape involved, you know, I make the recommendation, and then the court kind of comes back to me and says, yes, can you please go ahead and perform the neuropsychological evaluation? Or, you know, I, I may not, depending on, you know, the time frame and things like that. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, the court system do like to have continuity. So if, you know, the same evaluator can continue with the process, because now they've built rapport, mm-hmm. they know the underlying issues, it makes sense for that evaluator to go ahead and do the, mm-hmm. you know, second evaluation. Mm-hmm. Did you see the movie Just Mercy? I have not, no. And I read the I read the book. I didn't see the movie as well, mm-hmm. but I read the book and it, you know, I think about the juvenile justice system mm-hmm. and the criminal system. Um, uh, but to hear stories about how 14-year-olds acting impulsively can be giving these uh, life sentences um, and uh, is it, it really uh, caused, you know, raises your consciousness about um, changes 
and what you know who we're calling criminal and criminal behavior. Um, are you able to, in your neuropsychological work or forensic work, say that someone is um, um, what is called sociopaths or this is not impulsive behavior? Are you able to tease out that as finally um, as um, you know we'd like to believe? <laughs> right. Um, it, it, it is sort of, um, uh, I guess, a, um, a fine balance of identifying, you know, what's cognitive and what's more temperament issue, but certainly testing can demonstrate if there are, you know, those types of weaknesses. I've been involved in um, numerous cases where I have identified, you know, uh, deficits in um, the frontal lobe basically through testing. Um, and that has matched kind of that individual's history, their pattern of behavior. And so I've been able to say that, you know, while I can't say causal causality, um, I can definitely say that the impulsive behavior that has led to their criminal charges mm -hmm. is a, um, result of their underdeveloped frontal lobe or their underdeveloped overall cognitive functioning, mm -hmm. some sort of developmental delay, or even, you know, brain injury, any number of those types of things. Mm -hmm. So you can definitely have, you know, behaviors because of cognitive deficits right. that result in criminal charges. And then those are not necessarily purposeful criminal behaviors. Right. Um, they are, you know, as a result of that individual's cognitive deficits. And so if a 14-year-old is acting out impulsively that results in criminal charges, mm -hmm. there's a good chance that just because they're, you know, first of all, their frontal lobe is underdeveloped to begin with, just from a chronological standpoint. Right. And if on top of that, you have, you know, some other developmental delay, then it's very feasible that mm -hmm. that behavior that resulted in their criminal charge um, is at least in part due to some cognitive deficit that's present. And I will just, you know, continue to always punctuate those statements with the fact that we still can't isolate the child from the environment and how influential the environment um, is on uh, their development, even in utero. And I think that we've even, you know, been able to prove that environmental stressors can actually affect the baby. Um, and I don't have a set study, but I know we've read these things and, and I'm sure that um, if we were to survey and, and dig in the literature, we would find that yes, uh, certain uh, behaviors and stressors, I think we've even talked about uh, battered women before and um, how um, and, and, and uh, those stressors of uh, finances and homelessness can actually affect a pregnant woman. Uh, so therefore we try to you know, create safe houses and support systems um, for those reasons. Um, I think that um, the one uh, disease uh, process that we, we haven't spoken about that is so common, and I'd like to give you an opportunity to also dispel some myths about this, is the attention deficit disorder. Yeah. Um, it, it rings, uh, it makes people cringe to, to admit that their child might be might have hyperactivity or some type of deficit, uh, but so I'd like for you to describe it and um, and whatever you would like to say in terms of treatment. Sure. So um, yeah, it's such a broadly used you know term in 
in um, our culture these days. It's been around for a while. It's well-researched. Um, you know, ADHD, it stands for um, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. In childhood, the diagnosis is always ADHD, but then it's qualified by type. So there's inattentive type, hyperactive type, and combined type. So the inattentive type is kind of what you would think of. Um, the individual tends to not really be fidgety and, you know, impulsive and, you know, uh, bouncing off the walls, as it yeah. were. Um, but they tend to be, you know, more zoning off, you know, more distracted by their own thoughts. Uh, whereas the hyperactive type is the more physical, you know, uh, child or adolescent who is struggling to sit still, who's struggling with, you know, um, not blurting things out, that sort of thing. And then there's the combined type, which has, you know, symptoms of both. Okay. In adulthood, um, the hyperactivity piece is gone. So in adulthood, the diagnosis is just ADD. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just because just as a function of the development of the frontal lobe, the hyperactivity symptoms do atrophy over time. So you might have think, you might have heard of, you know, that, oh, they outgrew the ADHD or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, well, some of that is actually fairly true in the sense that as the frontal lobe reaches full development, mm -hmm. the hyperactive symptoms do atrophy, which is why you don't see adults kind of, you know, impulsively running out into the middle of the street mm -hmm. and they're, you know, they're not struggling to sit still in meetings and things like right. that. <laughs> um, if they are having those issues, it's probably something else going on. Okay. Um, in any case, so then, you know, once it's accurately identified, mm -hmm. which is key because so many other things can mm -hmm. mimic symptoms of ADHD. Mm -hmm. Individuals with anxiety and depression can come across inattentive and distracted and, you know, struggling to stay focused at home or at school. Mm -hmm. um, individuals with, you know, learning disorders mm -hmm. also can come across as having ADHD because, you know, they're in the middle of, you know, a reading lesson. And if they don't understand what's going on, yeah, they're going to start doing other things. Right. Um, so it's really, really important to have an accurate diagnosis of ADHD so that you are treating the right thing. Okay. Um, and then when it comes to treatment, you know, there's so many studies that have been done. Um, but really, you know, there's two basically two methods of treatment. There is behavior modification, which is exactly what it sounds like. You set up all kinds of external structures, schedules, reminders, positive reinforcers, you know, negative reinforcers, however you want to do it mm -hmm. um, to manage their inattentiveness. Um, and then there's medication. So there's been studies that have shown that um, really the medication tends to be most effective. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that medication is the best thing to um, go with for all individuals with ADHD. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if they're in the mild to moderate range, definitely it's worthwhile to try behavior modification. Yes. Certainly with younger kids, you want to be more cautious because there's more likelihood that the diagnosis, first of all, may not even be accurate because they're so young. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's important also that they start to be able to learn um, compensatory strategies on their own. And if they're always on medication without having been introduced to any behavior modification strategies, 
it's unlikely that they're going to develop those things on their own. Okay. So, so certainly I think both are necessary introduction and use of behavior modification is definitely important, Mm -hmm. Um, but there are definitely going to be individuals who are really going to just need the medication because their attention deficits are, you know, in that moderate to severe range. And, Mm -hmm. and so you have to sort of maybe pick the lesser of the two evils. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, uh, you know, um, you know, punctuate that with the fact that I had friends in medical school um, who ended up having to, particularly once we got to taking exams that were four hours long, um, basically needing to um, get um, get medication to help them focus. Um, some people um, may say that that's cheating, but they went through the necessary steps, identified that they always had a pattern of um, attention deficit, but they were smart. So, you know, with that note, I want the audience to know that, you know, just because you have a diagnosis of attention deficit or executive function weakness does not mean you're not smart or capable. And, and I think that's what families need to understand. There is something that everyone does extremely well and to continue to identify that, particularly in children and until adulthood, when they can set their own goals and uh, control their impulses Uh, But the key is to try to identify it, get it tested, and do both behavior modification with or without medication depends on how the symptoms and and the the person is progressing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. What what you, you know, said about high functioning individuals who have ADHD, it's Mm -hmm. absolutely true. You know, in the younger ages, they're going to, because of their higher abilities, they are going to be able to compensate and they're really, you know, not going to need any interventions because they're just, you know, high functioning. Um, But once their mental reserves are taxed, say they get into, you know, um, college and, you know, or even, you know, beyond college and, and they really just have reached their limit in terms of mental reserves, you're going to going to need, you know, that um, assistance. And, I've heard, you know, the whole concept of cheating, but really, as you said, that pattern has to be there from the beginning. It's mm-hmm. not, oh, you know, I need something to just help me with studying right. for this right. one test or anything. Okay. But it is a developmental disorder and it's there, you know, if you look for it, the symptoms are there. Very clearly, right? Yeah. And sometimes you will even see it in another family member. I think that's, Absolutely. Right. that's what people need to recognize is that you're not the only person even within your family. And if you talk about it, you know, uh, maybe we just need to talk about it in a healthier fashion. Um, and remember, you also said something key. You said positive and negative, not just negative reinforcements. Right. So, right. So, that's, um, so for some kids who, you know, are in stressor homes with a lot of stress, the only reinforcement is negative. So Again, we go back to the same conversation of mm-hmm. trying to figure out a way to advocate for children and uh, help schools uh, provide better services. I think absolutely. that's absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so I, I want to end there with you. I want to give us an opportunity to talk again, um, because as we emerge and uh, continue to go through COVID, go through the vaccines, uh, we definitely need someone uh, to talk to. And uh, I think the Uzima audience would be very um, interested in speaking with you again in more detail um, about uh, the test, the names of the test uh, that we can give children. Um, 
And the reason is because we really want to create an, a, a language uh, so that the audience can then advocate. You know, sometimes we don't say anything because we don't know what to say. Absolutely. It's would you help us with that? <laughs> Absolutely. It would okay. be my pleasure. Okay. It would be my pleasure. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, it's been my pleasure to speak with you. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I mean, the topics are so important and it's not just a one-time thing. Absolutely. Okay. Look forward to talking to you soon. Okay. Thank you so much. You have a good day. You too, Dr. Mancholi. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.